kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Acts 11, beginning in verse 27. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. In our last study, we saw the establishment of the first congregation comprised of both Jews and Gentiles brought together into one body by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That congregation, says Luke, was like a living manifestation of the grace of God. It was a visible testimony of the Christian doctrine of justification by faith. No man on earth is right with God by works of law, because no man is perfectly obedient to God's standard. Therefore, all men in the whole world must and may be right with God through pardon for their sins that is offered through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the great truth that transformed Antioch and created something altogether new there, and it is destined to transform all the nations. However, it is a challenging truth. To most people throughout history, it has sounded as though this message would clear the guilty, that is, allow sin to spread rampant, unchecked, and unresolved, and that's something God does not do, according to his own personal testimony in Exodus 34 and verse 7. So even as we find this concept celebrated, we're going to find a great deal of struggle in the early church over this matter. The church continues to struggle with it today, and this means the pattern manifest in the conduct of our ancient brethren, which allowed them to triumph and remain one body, is absolutely essential for us to learn and emulate. From this point forward, we should watch for it carefully as we examine the book of Acts. Verse 27, And in these days, that is, the days while Saul and Barnabas were assembling with the church at Antioch, which Luke tells us was about a year, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is the first mention of prophets in the church of Christ. However, we're not surprised to see them. In Acts 2.17, Peter quoted Joel's prediction about the reign of the Messiah and said that it would be marked by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in which your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see visions and your young men shall dream dreams. We will continue to meet prophets throughout Acts and we will find them described, discussed, and instructed in the writings of the apostles. There's a great deal of debate about the nature of the prophetic office in the church, and especially about whether or not it continues at the present time. After careful consideration of the relevant texts, I've concluded that the office of prophet was a temporary one, like the apostolate of Christ, which consisted of the Twelve and Paul, and it was only for those who received miraculous or supernatural gifts of prophecy by the laying on of hands by the apostles. When men were made prophets, they exercised their gift largely in the assembly. And when women were made prophetesses, 
They exercised their gift from house to house or in private settings. We will see this in future studies, even in the narratives of Acts. The gift of prophecy involved divine revelations by the power of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes regarding the future. Some prophecies involved explanations and interpretations of the teaching of the apostles, and some were designed to offer a miraculous witness to the presence of God among his people. In a future study, we will discuss the biblical teaching on the cessation of miraculous gifts in the church, but that would be an unnecessary distraction at this point. Right now, we want to celebrate those gifts and understand as best we can why God gave them. These were manifestations of the Spirit's work of empowerment. They accomplished two great and lasting goods in the church of Jesus Christ. First, they contributed to the completion of the body of truth that we might call the pattern or the deposit of faith, which represents the perfect fullness of the authority of Jesus Christ for the lives of his people in this world, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. The teaching of the true prophets of Jesus Christ is just as authoritative as the teaching of the apostles and in perfect harmony with it, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Second, the prophets manifest the presence and approval of God toward the followers of Jesus by the undeniable supernatural work of foretelling the future with accuracy. This was the test of a true prophet under the old system, according to Deuteronomy 18, 21-22, and Jesus said it would continue to manifest God's approval of him and his people when accurate predictions were made in his name, Mark 16, 17, and John 16, 13. Verse 28, Then one of them, that is, one of the prophets, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. This was a prophecy of the second variety named above. Its purpose was to manifest to the church and to the world that God favored these people. Note that Agabus stood up. This is an expression for publicly addressing a crowd. We've already discussed the expanded Western text of Acts, and it's noteworthy that here, the reading in that manuscript includes that Agabus stood up when we had gathered, that is, in the assembly. This is in keeping with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 14, that prophets would speak in the assemblies of the early church. Second, Luke says that Agabus spoke by the Spirit, that is, through divine revelation, He may have begun his address like the ancient prophets, Thus says the Lord, which might have been understood by the believers now, Thus says Jesus. Or perhaps he used the formula of Paul, Now the Spirit expressly states, 1 Timothy 4.1. He predicted that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, and Luke adds a note that it also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. In other words, The prophecy came true to the glory of Jesus Christ. While the phrase throughout all the world is evidently somewhat hyperbolic because there is no empire-wide famine recorded in the reign of Claudius, there were four famines during that time, and one of them had a severe impact on Judea. It's mentioned by Josephus, and evidently it took place in the year 45 AD, which would be one year after this prophecy was made. So the Christian response to the famine predated the famine and allowed the Christians to flourish while those around them suffered. From ancient days, that was a common sign of God's blessing on his people. 
Verse 29. Then, in response to Agabus' prophecy, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. In these passages, we have a biblical model for Christian congregational benevolence. The recipients are other Christians, the brethren dwelling in Judea. Obviously, more than Christians would suffer from the famine, but just as in Acts 2 and 4, there's no indication that the church was eradicating poverty and suffering in the world. The blessings of Christ's people were reserved for those who left all for his sake and for the gospels, Mark 10, 29-31. Thus, the benevolence shown to those in the church demonstrated that while God is good to all and sends his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, he reserves the fullest riches of his grace for those who keep his covenant and remember his laws, Psalm 103, verse 18. Second, we see a three-part process of contribution, collection, and distribution. The members of the congregation, each one, contributed or offered some of his wealth according to his ability. That's the same model we see in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Giving was a work of those who had been blessed with the means to give, and each gave in proportion to his blessings. The gifts were collected by the congregation, we presume, in the assembly on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. And they were delivered to the elders of the church in Jerusalem to be distributed to the needy saints by them. That model is consistent every time we see benevolence in the New Testament, either in Acts or mentioned in the epistles. Christian benevolence was always remarkable, but here it was bolstered by the fact that it was given to meet a need that did not even yet exist, but one about which God had warned by a prophetic vision. In this passage, prophets and elders are mentioned in the church in Jerusalem for the first time. But they are treated matter-of-factly as something that had already been there for a while and was well-established. You may remember from earlier studies, we suggest that elders, deacons, evangelists, enrolled widows, and other offices and roles within the body of Christ were present among the believers from a very early stage. Passages like this remind us that Luke does not give an exhaustive history. Our views into the lives of the early Christians are narrowly focused snapshots, and whatever assumptions we make about the churches in those days, they must be informed and regulated by the greater body of apostolic teaching. We must never use what the Bible does not say in one place to negate the force of what it does say in another. For an example here, the fact that elders are not mentioned in earlier passages or in every epistle or every verse discussing a church does not mean they were not present, and it certainly does not mean that they are not necessary. What we can take from this narrative is that as the apostles began to realize their global mission and leave Jerusalem for all the world, the prophets and elders and other workers became the more prominent and in some cases the more permanent fixtures of leadership in the congregations. In the last moments of our study, we want to consider what happened when Saul and Barnabas returned to Jerusalem. One of the most significant chronological controversies in Acts is regarding the harmonization of Luke's record of Saul in Jerusalem 
with Saul's own record in his epistles, both Galatians and Romans. In Galatians 1, Paul makes a major argument that he did not receive his understanding of the gospel from any man, including the twelve apostles. To this end, he claims that he only visited Jerusalem twice, once three years after his conversion and immediately after returning from Damascus, and the second time, as he describes, after 14 years, Galatians 2.1. He explicitly states that on this trip he was accompanied by Barnabas. And the question is, was this the trip mentioned here in Acts 11, or was it the one mentioned in Acts 15 for the so-called Jerusalem Council? I've debated whether to work through the arguments for both sides in this study, and my final decision was to resist that urge. Instead, I will simply state that I believe Paul's second visit, mentioned in Galatians 2, is the trip recorded here in Acts chapter 11. We will reserve comments on why Galatians 2 should be understood as a precursor to Acts 15 for when we arrive at Acts 15 in our study. In Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, Saul, then with the name Paul, writes, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem. I believe Paul is counting fourteen years from his conversion, reasoning inclusively as was common among the Jews, rather than from his first visit, and this would allow an interval of about eleven years between Saul's first and second visits, which makes a great deal of sense to my reckoning. He says that he was accompanied by Barnabas and Titus on this journey. And while Titus is not mentioned in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, that isn't very surprising because Luke never names Titus in the book of Acts at all. He says that he went up to Jerusalem by revelation, which may be a reference to the prophecy of Agabus already mentioned. In verse 10, Paul concludes his testimony of this meeting, saying that the church leaders in Jerusalem encouraged him, Barnabas, and company to remember the poor, which he then says was the very thing which I was eager to do. This lines up with the reason for the visit in Acts 11. They had come specifically to bring a financial offering for the relief of the brethren in Judea who would be suffering in the coming famine. Here is the special edition that Saul gives, which is not included by Luke, but will be pertinent for us to know. While he was in Jerusalem for this visit, he had what he called a private visit with those who were of reputation or those who seemed to be pillars in the church there. In verse 9, we learn that these were James, the elder, the brother of Jesus, Cephas, or Peter, and John. He wanted to speak to them about the gospel which he preached among the Gentiles, lest by any means he might run or had run in vain. That is, he wanted to know for certain that these men at Jerusalem agreed with what he had learned from Jesus and that they would not be in opposition to him for how he was working, specifically that he had not compelled the young man Titus to be circumcised. He states that already false brethren were trying to cause some trouble and division over this matter, and these were probably part of that circumcision party that we mentioned at the beginning of chapter 11 that was starting to form in the early church, those who were not convinced by Peter's testimony regarding Cornelius. In verse 7, Saul reports that they immediately and without controversy recognized that he was doing what Jesus had instructed him to do. They agreed with what he preached as the gospel, and they commended him in his work. Verse 9 says, 
They gave Saul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, a sign of approval and support, and commended them that they should work among the Gentiles while the rest of them would continue to labor among the Jews. While not every commentator and scholar agree with this chronology, it seems best to me after considering all the options, so we'll leave the account here. The Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great gift and a solemn charge to proclaim the gospel of justification by faith and full submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's difficult and in some ways confusing, but the followers of the Lord are committed to upholding the truth and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the process. And this is the essence of the reign of Jesus Christ in this world. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.